I'm Liam Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, welcome, Falcha, bonjour, guten tag, hola to all of you Motivated Classroom listeners joining from all over the world. I was fascinated to see just how many countries this has reached and is being listened to. So thank you so much wherever you are listening right now and whatever time zone you are on. So today we are going to have a bit of a question and answer session. I haven't done one of these for a while and I've been getting lots of different questions in the inbox, which is brilliant. Keep them coming. And today I'm going to try and look at some of those main questions. But of course, we always need to start with our little bit of Irish. Today, the Irish word is on letters. On letters. So I wonder if you're thinking now, what on earth is on lettuce? Is that lettuce? I'm afraid it's got nothing to do with lettuce. It is the toilet, actually. It's one of the first words we learned in school in Irish because you have to ask to go to the bathroom, of course. So we say, on will ciadagum dolgoji on lettuce, which means, can I go to the toilet? So there's your word for today, an important one if you're in Ireland and you need to find the toilet, just ask for the lettuce. And also, of course, a big merci and gracias to all of my patrons on the Patreon page of The Motivated Classroom. This week I shared some of my favourite crisps on my Twitter and Instagram account at the request of listeners because I'm always mentioning my favourite crisps and my coffees that I get from my patrons. So thank you so much for feeding my crisp addiction. All right, let's go straight into some of these questions then. So this question came in a few weeks ago from Isis Lopez Serrano. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And she was asking about teaching culture and how we go about teaching culture in the languages classroom. And this is actually such a pertinent question because in the recent episodes, I've been talking a lot about TPRS, teaching proficiency through reading and storytelling, or whatever version of uh, that that you currently do in your class. We all adapt these things and make them our own a little bit based off of what other people have started. Some researchers in the past have been critical about TPRS and the way it doesn't really bring in the target language culture in the fact that it's often these made up silly little stories. And I'm going to look at that a little bit later in another question that comes up about this. So teaching of culture is really important. And how do we go about that? Now, when I spoke to Beth Skelton in an episode previously in the interview episode that we looked at teaching history and teaching culture and how we go about making that really engaging for the students in the classroom. So go back and have a listen to that episode if you're wondering about teaching culture. For me, one of the things that always kind of worries me, I guess, or I am a little bit preoccupied about is I am Irish and I identify as Irish. Now, I identify as an Irish male who has a vast kind of cultural framework of different things that have happened in my life. Like I've lived in Spain, I've travelled in South America, I've lived in France, I've lived in Switzerland. I've lived in New Zealand, I've lived in Canada, so I've had lots of different cultural experiences and they shape who I am and my cultural view of the world. And one thing Beth really reassured me about in that episode was the outsider perspective of culture is very valid. So even though I teach Spanish, I didn't grow up in Spain, I learned Spanish as an adult, I did live there as an adult, but my perspective on Spanish culture is just as valid as someone who has lived in Spain their whole lives. Now, there may be some Spanish people listening to this and go, oh, well, hang on. I've been living here for 35, 40 years. I grew up here, went to school here. I think my cultural knowledge is going to be much deeper than yours. And I absolutely agree with you. Of course it is. It is completely different. However, what I'm trying to say is that my outsider perspective knowledge of the culture is valid. 
And I think that that's the important part is not to feel like a fraud when I'm talking about teaching about Spanish culture or Mexican culture, but to say I have never been to Honduras or Guatemala, for example. So if I'm teaching a little novel about Guatemala, I need to make sure the students get that. And I say, look, I've never been to Guatemala, but I'm fascinated by their culture. I've watched these videos. I've read these books and I think it's amazing. These things that happen. So I think that would be the first thing I would say is not to fear teaching culture and how you go about it, but just to acknowledge that your perspective is different from someone who has lived there or who is a native speaker. And that's really important, but you can still talk about things with passion. Like a great example is Dia de los Muertos. So most of us as Spanish teachers, we teach all about Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. It's a hugely significant moment in the Hispanic calendar, especially in South American culture. Now, I've never witnessed Dia de los Muertos because it always happens at a time in the year when I have to be teaching. So I can't be in Mexico to experience that. And I explained that to the students that I'm fascinated by it. I think it's an amazing celebration. I love that they celebrate the people's lives, that people come back to the earth and party with them like we have in the movie Coco, which gave a great representation of it. But I explain I've never experienced it. I'm learning it just like you guys, but I'm fascinated by it. And I love the way Mexicans talk about it. And I've spoken to Mexican people about it. And I've spoken to other South Americans about it. But I make sure that I acknowledge that my perspective is as an outsider to that culture because I didn't live it. I didn't grow up with it. And I think that is really important, just acknowledging that, but then showing your passion and your love for that bit of culture. That is how we instill cultural love and teaching of culture to our students. And I know that this question comes in because I have many Spanish friends who teach English in Spain and they're wondering about teaching culture that is not their culture in inverted commas. And I think you have to ask, well, what is culture first and foremost? I mean, it's made up of so many different things and culture to you can be different to what it is to me. To me, it's hugely related to the language, the music, the traditions, the customs, the way we grow up, the way we say things, the cultural differences in our in our facial expressions and our gestures. There's so many things involved in it. And if you have some of those and you've learned some of those over time by experiencing it and being there, then share that passion with your students. Now, how to go about it? There's so many different ways. For me, I love teaching with those little graded novels. Like I had that interview with Adriana Ramirez, talked about the use of the novels. And for me, that really helps with the teaching of culture. But also videos and photos of when you were actually there immersed in the culture. Share those and talk about your experience of being there and what it felt like and the passions behind it. Kids love to get to know things about us and what we do in our spare time. They, they think we just live in school. And when you tell them about these other things, they're fascinated. And then also one that I feel has worked very well in my classes. I teach in an international school, so I've got a range of cultures in front of me is asking students when we do like a unit about now and before. So about how the world has changed and how it has developed getting to do an interview with their parents or grandparents or someone from their own culture, whatever that may be, or a mix of cultures, and doing an interview with them in their own language. So, and I really encourage them to do it in their own language. And then they write about that interview and the cultural differences in the target language, which for me is Spanish. And that is hugely beneficial because they're not only learning about the culture of Spain and Mexico and Hispanic culture, but they're learning about their own culture and comparing it. They're maybe learning about foods and traditions and customs that they never knew about because they're talking to their grandparents, if that's a possibility, or maybe it's a friend of the family. I think really important to state is in the research, the most recent research by Ryan and Desi, who are the, you know, the founders of 
intrinsic motivation theory of self-determination theory and how we grow intrinsic motivation that I talk a lot about and I used in my doctorate. In their most recent update, they talk about studying foreign languages and cultures and it being a direct antidote to the lack of understanding and ignorance that are often the root causes of racism, prejudice and discrimination. So we have a hugely important role here, teaching people about difference and diversity and allowing them to be open to it. It can actually not only boost their motivation, but it can reduce prejudice and discrimination, which is hugely important. And they actually talk a lot about the impact of well-being on the student and how we can increase their well-being when we focus on those three basic needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness and to keep going back to that. They're essentially, for me, I wrote in my thesis that foreign language classes are essentially a gateway to empathy and understanding of other cultures and they allow us to connect and and communicate with people breaking down the barriers and opening arms rather than building walls. And for me, that's hugely, hugely important to try and share that passion for the culture and understanding about other people and how they do things. So I hope that answered a bit of your question, Isis, and thanks so much for sending it in. Wow, we are nine minutes in already and that was one question. I'm terrible at getting through questions. I just end up speaking and talking for so long. I'm so sorry. I'll try my best to be more succinct. The next question came in from Mr. Francis on Twitter and he goes by Mr. Francis MFL. Big fan of the podcast and and he's always sharing things out. I definitely recommend you follow him. So he asked, what is the biggest fundamental change or idea that language teachers should implement into their practice? Now, that is a massive question, but it's a great question and something we should ask ourselves a lot. Now, first and foremost, I think it's important to say that this is just my opinion. Yes, I have a love of learning of languages. Yes, I have studied and read around it, but I am just one voice. There is many other people with different opinions on this and they're just as valid. So please take this with a pinch of salt, as we say in English. So I think for me, the biggest thing that I would love to see more languages teachers implement into their practice would be at the beginning levels, to focus on confidence, competence and motivation and fluency rather than accuracy, particularly in those first one or two years. Don't focus on accuracy. And when I say don't focus on accuracy, I'm talking about grammar tables and form and loads of vocab and spelling mistakes. The research is pretty strong around this, that when we focus overly on grammar, accuracy and precision and spellings at the early stages, we often demotivate our learners to such an extent that they will drop the language and feel that they cannot do it. So for me, that is the biggest change. Now, I am absolutely not saying here, never teach grammar again, like not at all. Please don't take it like that. People sometimes come back to me and say things like, no, but I love teaching grammar and I do too. I'm a linguist. I love talking about grammar and all the different intricacies and changes. But I know that most of my students do not love that. Some do, like maybe one or two in every class. They're like me, they're linguists and they love it. But the other 25 don't really care. They just want to know how to speak and communicate. And we have to try and get through to most of them. Now, of course, as they get older and they're starting to write at a higher level and speak at a higher level and they're more interested in the linguistic mechanic side, we can start to drill into why certain words end in a certain way and why we use this expression here and they can be really interested in it. But at the beginning, for me, it should just all be about 
confidence and fluency and not worrying about mistakes and not even worrying if they're saying the wrong thing and other people are hearing it. It's, it's about confidence and fluency, making them enjoy the language so much and enjoy the classes that they feel like they could go and try it out with someone um, in the language. They could talk to you a little bit in the language. And how do we build that? Well, we build it through the three pillars of motivation, which are autonomy, competence and relatedness. So giving them autonomy, co-creating materials, doing things that interest them, talking about their interests, making it all about them at the beginning so that they feel like they're really learning stuff and they're moving on quickly and focus on the comprehensible input approach. You speak in a way and show materials with lots of repetitions so that they feel like they're understanding everything. Now, some people are listening, going, yeah, but I should expose them to authentic materials by native speakers early on so they get used to it. My personal opinion is I disagree with that. I think absolutely they should be exposed to authentic ways of speaking in slowed down speech and they should be exposed to different accents right at the beginning, of course. But I don't think it serves my students to play them stuff that is at a level that they just absolutely don't understand anything and it just quashes their motivation. I like to build it up over time bit by bit. And I think what we need to remember about focusing on intrinsic motivation and those three basic psychological needs is that it is universal. It's for everybody, every culture, every race, every ethnicity, every gender, whatever you identify as, these three basic needs are the same. And this has been found over and over again in the research. One of the most recent ones is Kaplan and Madger in their 2017 study. They had 308 Muslim Arab Bedouin and then Jewish pre-service teachers, completely different cultural backgrounds and opposite ends of the scale culturally with their beliefs and everything else. And these teachers, this teacher's college in Israel confirmed essentially the universality of the framework. Now, this is just one of many studies. Despite the massive differences in culture and background, both groups had a very similar sense of need support. And they've done similar studies with other cultures and even with tribes, people who have uh, very little contact with the outside world and still found that these needs are universal. That when we are, when we have autonomy, when we feel competent and when there's a sense of connectedness, then we are feeling more motivated. So if we concentrate on those at the beginning, then we're going to have more accuracy in the future. So I hope that answers your question a little bit, Mr. Francis. I, I That would be the biggest change for me is to have more focus on comprehensible input approaches at the beginning levels to go away from grammar tables and long vocab lists where we make students feel like they can't do it because there's too much to take in and just focusing on confidence, fluency and competence, particularly at the beginning, lots and lots of listening and reading loads. And then we get into the accuracy a little bit later. Okay, question number three. So this comes in from Williams1924 and Williams1924 asks, getting buy-in from high school students who aren't amused by silly nonsense stories. And I kind of touched on this at the beginning. Now that is a great question because when we talk about TPRS storytelling in its original approach, it has, as you may say, a very silly storyline sometimes. You know, someone mentioned that I invented a pineapple that had three knees and how do you get kids to buy into that? Well, the reality is most children are children and they are creative and they like this kind of stuff and they enjoy feeling silly and things aren't always so serious in class. 
Now, I understand what you mean in the older high school students. I'm not going to do about a pineapple with three knees with them. Absolutely not. But I do stories with them, even with my most advanced year 13s, which is like grade 12s, who are really advanced learners. We still do a story once or twice a year. Now, not as often, just once or twice a year. And it'll last about a week and they get to relax. But it's about teaching them really different structures that they need to have that impressive writing in their exams that we talk about and the impressive use of speech. But we focus on the motivation in there. And I always try and adapt the stories to like popular culture and things to do with celebrities in the older students. So one of those stories I do with our older students is we do one about a character who queues up for ages and ages and ages to buy a house. But when they get to the estate agent, they realise that they actually forgot that they already had a house. And so this is quite difficult grammar to say, oh, he had forgotten that he already had a house. And if he hadn't forgotten, then he would never have queued up. And so this happens and then they get to the estate agent and the estate agent uh, goes through all their their criteria and their system and then realises, oh, you already have a house. And they didn't know. And then they go out and they writes her little notes so that uh, he or she remembers that they have a house, but then they lose the note and then they go to another estate agent. And the characters in that come from the students. So maybe they'll say one of the characters is... Beyonce and the other character is, you know, some famous football player. That's fine. So you are still using these stories with them and they're finding it interesting or maybe use teachers from the school or whatever. But it's just done in a way that appeals to their interests a little bit more. And it's still a kind of a silly story. It's just about a woman who can't find it. But actually, it turns out that what I would like to do it is at the end, it turns out that the woman has a ring on her finger and there's an inscription in the ring and the ring says from Jay-Z and Jay-Z of course and Beyonce they'll go back a long way and then it says you know well if you liked it then you should have put a ring on it and that's how it ends and she would have known who she was if he had given her the ring so lots of different and difficult structures there but it's adapted to the older group and I think to kind of sum up The thing is with stories, whatever way you decide to do it. Now, if you go back on the podcast, there's an episode which is called the narrative approach. And that is a different way of doing stories. So have a listen to that one. But recently, Steve Smith on Twitter actually sent me a doctorate thesis by Peter Mitchell, 2016. And it's all about the storyline method. And he used it with military linguist cadets, so adults. And again found that the story was really motivational, that they learned loads of English, that their grammar improved. And he says things like students showed improvements in terms of English language skills. They discovered that storyline could benefit all areas of their language in terms of the form and the grammar points. Storytelling works and we are hardwired to learn through story and narrative. We've been learning through story since the beginning of time. And Bowman In 2018, he talks about this in his study about storytelling holding an important historical position. And then Cramsh in his book in 98 mentions about how stories have been a teaching tool across cultures for centuries and that we need to bring the narrative back into the classrooms. And Roberts in his book in 2012, he argues strongly for that because it hooks people in. They want to know what happens next. So, yes, some stories with the younger kids are silly and they're made up and they're about animals and they go to different places and the animal has a personality. But of course, as the students get older, it becomes more about popular culture. Maybe it's about a current famous skater that they follow or an Instagrammer or a YouTuber. And then that buys them in and they can they can really relate to it. But the actual teaching with story is proven in research to be something that is highly motivating and helps us with our language development. 
Okay, we're about 20 minutes in here. Will I squeeze one more in? I don't know. Well, you guys can always just press stop on the podcast, I guess. Okay, I'll do one more. So this one comes in from AK Karimaru. I hope I've said that right correctly on Instagram. And basically asking about differentiation and challenging tasks. How do we teach vocabulary rather than just having long, boring lists on screens? Well, hopefully the previous answer helped you a little bit. For me, I am a Spanish teacher and a French teacher, but they're not my native language. And if I am looking at a textbook and there's a list of vocabulary and for beginners uh, or even low intermediates, and there's some vocab there that I do not know or that I don't use, I am not teaching that. If I've not needed it in the 10 to 12 years that I've been speaking the language and teaching it, then it is not something that my beginners need right now. I try and go with the most highly frequent words and that always is about in the classroom, of course, to begin with all the different items of the class and they learn those through the classroom jobs. So they've all got classroom jobs, which are areas of the classroom. I never teach numbers and I never teach days of the week and I never teach dates as in in a list and we go over them. We never write them down. They're done by jobs. Someone has a job is to write up the date every day. So they learn the numbers. We learn the numbers through birthdays and through uh, events that are happening on different days. And when I ask them numbers, they just know them. And I say, how do you know that? And they're like, "Uh, I don't really know how I know it, I guess, just because you've been saying it. So, yeah, I think I would say vocab lists. I would go away from those as much as I can, but they still get lots and lots and lots of vocabulary through the use of story and narrative. And we do like things like the star of the week, which is a podcast about that, an episode earlier. And that is all about them and what they like doing. And they pick things up in a different creative ways. You can also have them create things. And of course, there's apps like Quizlet, which are very good for increasing vocabulary. In terms of differentiation and challenging tasks, for me, I always try and think about how am I going to keep my most advanced learners busy and working and learning once this activity is finished because I know they're going to finish it first particularly around reading so often with reading I'll have my most advanced students when I see that they're kind of done I'll just put up on the board okay if you're finished what I would like you to do is invent five questions based on the text that have no answer creative questions that you need to read between the lines to find the answer for that And that they struggle with that a bit first because they're used to just doing comprehension, but then they like it. And I'll use some of those in assessments. That is one way I like to push my my advanced learners when we're reading. For advanced learners, when it's stuff like oral or, you know, we're practicing conversations and things, then the questions that they get are much more advanced. So I might might ask one student a yes or no question to do with the story that we're doing or the narrative. But my more advanced one will get a much more open question like why or how did you know or what will he do next? So you're pushing them in those different types of ways. And I think that helps with differentiation a lot. But it is an ongoing task to differentiate our work. So I hope that helped a little bit. And finally, there was a few questions from a few different people like Chamina11 and Astar69 on Instagram, which were asking about apps and online teaching. Many of us, unfortunately, are in a remote teaching right now. I'm not. I'm in school every day. We, we have been since the month of May um, with masks on. But I know that is not the case for many people. I honestly recommend go back, listen to episode 13 with Joe Dale. He gives some fantastic tech tips for teaching languages. And if you're on Twitter, I recommend that you go and look for hashtag 
MFL Twitterati and then also hashtag whatever the tool is. So let's say you're trying to learn about Padlet or you want to learn about Loom or you want to learn about Zoom or you want to learn about something else you've heard because there's so many things out there right now. Then you type in hashtag MFL Twitterati, hashtag whatever the thing is. So hashtag Padlet, hashtag Flipgrid and you'll find loads of stuff there. I think my biggest tip is don't get overwhelmed by the amount of technology stuff out there. There's new stuff every day. And just because other people are using it doesn't mean you have to use it. I recommend just trying one new thing out and having a go at it, but not everything all at once. And if other people are saying, oh, Flipgrid, this was great. And we used Padlet for that. And I used this new tool for this. And we're on Blookit for that. That's okay. Let them go through it and figure it out. And then you can do it when you're ready, but you don't need to put them all in at once. What that will do is quash your competence a little bit because you'll feel overwhelmed. So just take one of those and have a go at it and look and see what other teachers are doing. I think that will help a lot. So there we go. That is a lot of questions, about 25 minutes. I'm so sorry I didn't get to all the other ones, but I promise I'll get there. And in terms of online teaching, I am going to publish some of my favourite story scripts that work online uh, this week for people to use freely because I understand it's just so hard working from home and trying to balance everything out. So make sure you join me next week because I've got a great episode lined up on teacher motivation and particularly how we can grow motivation in ourselves as teachers and what are the things that impact our motivation. Now, that was quite a big focus in my doctorate, actually. It wasn't just about student motivation. I wanted to learn about tools in the classroom that can also motivate the teacher and can hit the basic needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness. So check in for that one next week. We're going to talk a bit about the curriculum, how it can sometimes constrain us and how to get around that and increase our own motivation as teachers. So that's a good one to check in with. And after that, I've got a really good interview lined up. Quite exciting. I'll release that in about a week's time. So you got to keep paying attention. So don't forget today's word of the day in Irish was lehris, meaning toilet. Great words. <laughs> And of course, you have to make sure that you check out the Patreon page if you can. I am going to get myself some crisps this weekend and some nice coffee. So yeah, thank you so much to all of you who support the podcast on Patreon by getting me a coffee a month. I really appreciate it. And of course, if you're not in a position to do that, guys, it's no problem. Just keep listening, keep sharing, keep telling your friends about the podcast and let's reach a few more countries. The Motivated Classroom Podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.